welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. It's good to be back to have another episode out. A um, little bit more of a gap than I wanted, but we've been, uh, well, I say we, I've been, I've been dealing with a little bit of medical issues, and I think we're getting those figured out now. So um, hopefully to get back on a regular schedule there. It was funny, the uh, last podcast episode I did, I think we talked about processing our boar. We processed Napoleon here on the farm. The first pig I'd processed here in a very, very long time, or maybe even the first one ever, because I've processed in other places. And then, wouldn't you know it, just a month later, a friend of mine called and said, hey, will you help me process one of my gilts? So we went over to his farm one day, and we did the initial process, the butcher or actually the, the 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 kill, the evisceration, the skinning. And then he has a cooler room in his garage, so we were able to hang it there, and Lee, he let it hang for quite a few days before he cut it up. So go from doing none on-farm processing to uh, doing two within 30 days. So that was fun. Well, before we get into our discussion, I just wanted to talk real quick about uh, our face group group. <laughs> there's that delay again the pastured pig uh, facebook group it's growing more and more you're joining uh, good conversation on there uh, just keep keep going if you want to check it out just uh, go to facebook and search the pastured pig also we're getting closer to our pastured pig workshop down at sheridan park farms in grady north carolina that's on may 22nd and last time I talked to Chuck, I think there was a handful of slots left available. I think he's capping it at 50, and he's dangerous close to being there. So if you guys want to come down, hang out with us, talk pastured pigs for a day, then I'll post some information in the show notes there so you can check that out. One little thing that's not directly related to pastured pigs, well, I guess maybe it is, um, we just received our Starlink satellite internet connection, and we've had a deposit on that for 14 months, finally got it, so we just got that installed and testing that right now to see how that's going to go. I am very optimistic so far, even with it just sitting on the ground, because we, uh, we weren't sure we were going to mount it and had to special order a mount to put it on top of the house. But right now, with it just sitting in the grass, it is already light years ahead of the HughesNet. And we currently pay like $162 a month for HughesNet, and this is going to be $110. So, you know, and of course, unlimited, no throttling for now. We'll see how that goes. But uh, I think that could be a game changer for us. So it may allow me to do a little more episodes, maybe some live stuff, maybe even some multi-guest uh, discussions going forward if the bandwidth can handle it. 
Also, one other thing is I've had uh, two people now reach out and request more topical discussions. They appreciate uh, the interviews we're doing with farmers and talking about their different setups with their pigs, but maybe trying to drill down deeper into topical stuff. So I've got one or two lined up already that will uh, release soon, but would love to have more input from you guys to say, hey, what do we need to talk about specifically? You know, kind of like the um, Arco Lab discussion, people found that very helpful. So do we need to get into more into the um, animal husbandry as far as you know, treatment, disease, uh, supplies, feed, uh, you know, the marketing side of it, all those type of things. So uh, if you get, if you think about it, send me an email, Troy at redtoolhouse.com or use the contact form on the pasturedpig.com and let me know what you think about that. All right. So for our interview this evening, we are going all the way up to Franconia, Minnesota at Rust Hill Ranch, and we're going to talk with Matt Hardy. And I like Matt's approach. He he kind of went in head first. And he's kind of a self-proclaimed city guy that decided it was time to get up and get out because of all the unrest during COVID and some of the other things. And um, just get, yeah, move to the country and get started. And it sounds like he's off on the right foot. So uh, we're going to dive right into that and we'll do some wrap up stuff on the back end. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you for having me, Troy. Well, all right. Well, um, okay. So Minnesota, for some reason on these podcasts, I always start with geography. I'm just fascinated by it, I guess. So Franconia, Minnesota, I take it maybe it's a little, it gets a little brisk up there at times. It does. We actually had a heat wave, so it touched 40 degrees this week, but uh, for about the past three weeks, it's been right at zero, give or take. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'll keep you moving. <laughs> so you've been uh, chipping a lot of ice here recently, I would assume. Well, yes, and we actually um, we can get more into the details here. We're not running any animals in the winter, oh, okay. aside from a handful of laying hens from our first farming experiment um, that are still with us. Um, but we processed all our pigs and all our broiler chickens uh, by November. Very good. Yes, there's there's a lot of wisdom in that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. So tell me about. Um, let's start here. Let's start with Rust Hill Ranch, and I know we're going to get more into some of the history of, of kind of the background here. But give us that that quick summary, that elevator speech, if you would, of Rust Hill Ranch, uh, kind of where it is, what it's laid out like, and, and then how you guys came about it. Great. So we're on 40 acres in Franconia, Minnesota, as you said. This is just, uh, just on the eastern edge of Minnesota along the St. Croix River Valley along the border with Wisconsin. Um, we raise forest-raised pork and pastured poultry. And last year was our first year, 2021. And um, we had a great year. We kind of dove in uh, head first and figured some things out along the way, but all in all, things went better than I, even I expected. And I was pretty optimistic and, and excited. Um, it certainly wasn't easy, but it was a great, a great year. And we're really looking forward to having one partial year under our belt. Okay, so it's good. I appreciate that summary. That was nice and concise. So I can that allows me to ask you a couple more questions about that. So uh, 40 acres right now. Um, it's my understanding from pre-screening info that you don't necessarily own all that 40 acres. Is that correct? That's right. We were 
um, living in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, things got a little bit, a little bit heated in that area, mm-hmm. and we decided to uh, head for the hills, so to speak, and uh, started looking like a lot of folks at homestead options uh, near in in the same general region, but out in the outskirts of the of the city. And um, while we were looking, a friend of ours was able to uh, actually acquire some land. Uh, on an adjacent farm that that farmer was selling and moving down to Florida. And so when he acquired some extra acreage and he knew we were kind of looking at doing some of this uh, homesteading and livestock production, he asked if we wanted to kind of use that land <laughs> uh, that he acquired. And so we leased it from him last year and we're in the process of formally acquiring it here um, this year. Oh, excellent. Okay. So, so, uh, so that that entire forty acres is leased. Am I understanding that, or or is it partial lease, and, and then you guys have acquisition of some of that? Well, we leased it all. Yeah, it's about one third woods, one third uh, former cor- corn and soy okay. field that is now turning into pasture, um, and then one third kind of riparian wetland. And so, just so that we could kind of express our intent to purchase the whole thing, we decided to lease the whole thing this year, even though we probably only utilized. Um, maybe 10 or 15 acres of productive capacity on that land. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, does this require, this move from the metro area, does this require a, a change of, a total change of career? Is this abandon the the uh, nine to five, or is this, uh, you, you still have some of that going on and you, you commute or you telecommute? How, how do you manage that? Yeah, my wife and I are lucky enough that we were able to participate in the remote economy. And mm-hmm. so when things got, shut down and everybody started living on zoom and um you know i work in software she works in um uh counseling and so we were able to do that over video and and uh digital channels and so really we could end up doing that from anywhere so that gave us the flexibility to uh pick up and find a new place to plant our roots and um uh at the same time that flexibility allowed us to interleave the farm chores and responsibilities and kind of the daily daily activities that go along with that so we we were juggling quite a bit last year but it was it was worth it wow yeah it, i just think it's fascinating and, and i love the um, i love the irony of it when we think about homesteading and, uh, and you know, homesteading <laughs> and small farming everyone kind of uses those words back and forth or some feel they're different some feel the same but but just this idea that a more traditional lifestyle can be realized thanks to technology. So, so right. this this technology that we've all been forced to embrace in the last two years is allowing more and more people. It's just it just amazes me how many people that I talk to have a very similar story where they're able to flee the um, the, the metro areas, the major urban areas, go to more rural setting, and of course, all they really need is a good internet connection, and they can conduct a business just as if they were still driving into town five days a week. Right. Fascinating. Right. I still, I still commute about once a week, um, but, uh, and, and, you know, it's about an hour now, yeah. but there were plenty of days, plenty of days when that commute was an hour anyway in traffic and snow and stuff like that. So right, right. It's yeah. almost, it's almost a wash. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, that's definitely great. So, so here, yeah, I'm kind of, teeing this up well because I know you've got a good story about history but let's let's maybe start here and then we'll, we'll almost do a flashback we'll do the uh, I'll do the old school flashback here but so um, 
So looking at the fact that uh, you all were city dwellers, um, you, you, you mentioned heated, and I want you to unpack that a little bit. So things got a little hot in that area, and I, I, can, I can make some assumptions, but I'll let you, let you say what was going on in that area there. But why is it that you came to the conclusion of, okay, I, we got to get out of the city because of these reasons. Let's go out in the middle of nowhere and let's do a pig and chicken farm. Uh, let's see if I can succinctly get from A to B there. Um, so I think we, like a lot of folks, started pretty naively or simply when the lockdown occurred. Um, I think now jokingly referred to as 15 days to slow the spread. Uh, right, yes. That lasted a little longer, but anyway. Um, and everybody sort of got the backyard chicken bug, and so did we. So we had our little... Uh, little house in town there in the suburb of Minneapolis and decided, hey, let's get six laying hens and just give this a shot. And um, so I built a portable chicken coop out of um, actually a, a fence, a dilapidated fence that I finally tore down to appease the neighbors and then repurposed the slats for this uh, chicken coop and thought I had a kind of a great little thing going back there. And, um, you know, we had the chicks in place and everything was moving along and um then let's just say the unrest <laughs> civil unrest in the heart of minneapolis which was yeah. just maybe a six eight ten miles from our house and about six eight ten blocks from my office um and we sort of had a reality check um and um you know this without taking a particular stance on the topic i you know i went into the office the next day after um some of the uh, rioting took place there in Minneapolis, and I was literally driving through walls of flame as <laughs> buildings were burning all around me. And yeah. I, I decided, okay, well, I've seen this with my own eyes, and um, this is not exactly the scene that I want uh, to raise my kids in or raise a family in. And so we started, basically got uh, slapped in the face a little bit and, and started to be able to say, okay, let's just, let's rethink what, where we want to be, what we want to do and how we want to do it. And, um, like we said, the, the virtualness of, of work at that time allowed us to expand our radius, um, while still staying, you know, in the, in the region so that we could, um, still enjoy the benefits of the, the resources of the, of the city here. But, um, let's just say keep our distance a little bit without um, without abandoning the city entirely. Yeah. Yeah. So since you'd already become chicken addicts, it just made sense as you moved out, then you're going to just do what you're going to embrace chicken math and then just kind of grow into other areas. So, so <laughs> right. why did, so why did you decide to, to turn that into a business? I mean, what, what was the light bulb moment for there to go? Okay. We've got our six chickens that we're allowed to have in, in town here, we move out rural, we take our six chickens with us, chicken math happens, but uh, what was the light bulb moment to say, okay, this this needs to actually be something that becomes a business, becomes um, more than just you know, some, a, a backyard flock? Right, and I'm, I'm glad you reminded me the imprecision of my term homestead earlier. Um, that was sort of our original idea, and then it turned into the, the business side. Um, I think it came from uh, appreciating that, well, I had been inspired by some of the, I guess, uh, 
godfathers of some of this stuff, like yeah. Joel Salatin and mm-hmm. um, folks in that in that uh, genre who had a lot to share, and I've been sort of a fan of for probably a decade prior to any of this stuff going down. And mm-hmm. so when when I started thinking about well, what what's how could we if we if we were decided to purchase 40 acres as a as a investment if nothing else what could we do with it and uh, pretty soon it's you know the math just started looking better for trying to leverage some economies of scale and um, try to try to produce quantities that could potentially represent um, an income that we could could live on if if somewhat frugally so um, and I've been an entrepreneur uh, kind of accidental entrepreneur my whole life uh, started my first company in my college dorm room in 1998 and um, had a couple others in between there and so in some ways it was uh, you know the just another stepping stone I've had several uh, uh, different career paths over that over that period both in technology and in education I was a classroom teacher for eight years and um, so in some ways it was it was a new adventure um, and I had also been inspired and I guess informed by my wife and her family she grew up on a farm in northeastern Montana um, her her last her maiden name last name means Rust Hill in Norwegian so mm-hmm. we decided to name the enterprise after her because of that inspiration um, and I just just got um, you know not hopefully not too naively but just enamored with that uh, that idyllic country, <laughs> hardworking ethos and um, Northeast Montana is a little bit different, a little bit different climate than uh, Eastern Minnesota, but uh, right. the the concept is the same. And so I, once I started doing the math and saying, yeah, I think I could do that. I think I could do that. Let's, let's find some, let's find some animals and go for it. Yeah. yeah and I, I appreciate you sharing that because I just love to hear the genesis of, of, of an idea, but then also uh, pardon the pun, the organic nature of, of how mm. people go from point A to point B. So this idea that, you know, if some some of us listening may think, oh, here's a greenhorn that moved from the city out in the middle of nowhere, doesn't know what he's doing, mm-hmm. that, A, like you'd mentioned, 10 years of following Salatin and some of those others, so that, that interest, B, the entre- entrepreneurial spirit that you've had since uh, since college, um, and then, of course, see the idea of, of moving out rural and, and then seeing you know, these pieces kind of fall together. Uh, there's land. There's potential for this land. Uh, what can you do with 40 acres? Oh, here's some ideas. Uh, you, you, you just kind of you stick your toe in the water in some of these areas. But some of these areas have been building, culminating to this. And, then of course, D, which I'd, I want to talk about a little bit more, is the, um, the paying homage to the history of your wife's family's homestead and getting the inspiration from that. So, so unpack that a little bit more. I know you got a little more details about this Eastern Montana homestead and, I, and you guys have even traveled there um, uh, recently or, or even back to the original homestead, correct? That's right. The farm that they continue to work, it's a, it's an organic wheat farm. Um, there, my wife's grandfather was doing organic um, kind of vertically integrated wheat production, had a, had a mill on site there and, uh, bagged it up and sold it to local grocers before Bob's Red Mill. He was even a was a household name, um, and uh, they still they still farm it. And um, the original homestead that was uh, the land patent, I think, is what they call it, according to my father-in-law, uh, was was issued in uh, 1919. 
and that structure still stands. So we've got a little photo of that on our website and um, just that idea that there is so much history and um, legacy and, um, you know, continuity there, I just think is so, so special and so rare and something that I wanted to, and we wanted to honor in our own way, um, a couple states to the east. Yeah, and, and I, I love that. The inspiration that comes from uh, looking back at that history, looking at that legacy, and and just uh, you know, building on that tradition. So so your wife, I mean, we're, it's my understanding you're saying generations, literally, you know, would you say 14 or 10 generations, something like that, that there's that many generations of farmers? Well, that site was homesteaded in 1919. That was the original homestead. Um, and prior to that, um, they have... Uh, Looks, it sounds like the original family photo on the, in the U.S. was in the 1870s, uh, Wisconsin, then through uh, Iowa, and then northwestern Minnesota, Thief River Falls, hmm. and then uh, they skipped over the Dakotas and landed in Montana. Yeah. Um, and so the the history does go even farther back. So we say fourth generation, um, just because that's sort of where the the continuous farm has resided there sure. um, but it definitely the the farming was in the family pretty much from from that original immigration gotcha gotcha okay excellent so so we've got the inspiration we've got the uh, the kind of the unrest and the uncertainty of living in urban uh, the acquisition of this land uh, at the lease level at this point so you go out there and you decide, well, okay, the, the work allows us to still generate the income we're used to, but it's now time to, to get our hands dirty and get into this more. So, so where did you start? Was it, was it the flock expansion? At what point did you say, uh, we need to have pigs on this property? The flock expansion actually hasn't, hasn't happened, so our chicken math has been pretty oh, static. Very good. Um, <laughs> so we're... we're you know, taking care of them diligently here throughout the, the freezing cold here. But um, the the interest in particular enterprises evolved. Um, so I mentioned Joel Salatin. I was also getting uh, really into some of the Greg Judy uh, YouTube videos on his farm in Missouri with his uh, grass-fed cattle. Uh, Gabe Brown from Bismarck, North Dakota is another big name that, that you know, I don't know, maybe maybe sub, subconsciously I appreciated him because he, he says he was a city kid and his wife grew up on a farm. And uh, I figured, well, if it's good enough for Gabe Brown, maybe I can pull this off, too. Um, and uh, so anyway, that was sort of the, you know, Salatin is famous for chickens and um, Judy and Brown are, are kind of famous for the cattle production. And then there's another uh, not to mention a competing podcast, although I think they've tailed off a little bit. There was one called Grass Fed Life where they. Um, Darby Simpson and Diego Footer talked about um, uh, forest raised and pastured pork, and they I was listening to, well, dozens of these podcasts prior to the Pastured Pig podcast, which is now my favorite, um, and uh, they made a comment about, um, you know, whether it's profitability or just kind of uh, energy per animal unit or whatever, and you made a comment that uh, speaking of, you know, animal math, one pig is worth about 80 chickens in terms of profit yeah. potential. And um, I heard that and I thought, oh, OK, well, I've got six chickens. So um, imagine 80 of these or one pig. Um, and that's sort of what I what I. That was the 
the first kind of moment where I thought, oh, well, maybe I should do pigs first. Right. Uh, and then as I learned more about them and I just sort of appreciated that, um, I guess they were a little bit more, I don't want to say niche, but a little bit more uh, almost quirky <laughs> of an yeah. a, a, a animal to produce that. Um, and of course, you know, the, the famous Salatin line, the marvelous pigness of pigs, right? There's just something about them that people who work with them seem to love. Um, and so I, I figured I'd give it a try. And uh, the other thing I noticed is just a little bit of an aside, but as I was starting to build up my, some of my initial supplies, you know, feeders and waterers and things like that, I was kind of running around Craigslist and farm auctions and stuff and, and acquiring just some very basic infrastructure to get things going. And I just, I just sort of noticed accidentally or serendipitously that these people that raised pigs just seemed to be the nicest darn people I'd ever met in my life. <laughs> and, um, and they're, they're, I don't know, there has to be something there. And I don't know if it's uh, uh, good people pick pigs or pigs only work with good people, but it just, it seemed like it was, uh, as soon as I got into it, it just really just felt right. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. I, I've never heard anybody discuss that, but that's good. It could be, you could be onto something there. That could be that, <laughs> that pigs really choose us. We don't choose pigs maybe. Mm. All right. So, um, man, yeah, I, I like what you said there about um, looking at this from a logical standpoint when it comes to um, to business. And again, that 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 speaks to your business acumen. Um, I know that there's and it's maybe not anything wrong with this. There's some people that choose pigs because uh, they look good you know, or they're they're fun to play with or uh, they, right. they like bacon so much. They think, oh, let's have a business where I can have all the bacon in the world that I can I can eat. So uh, looking at it and actually actually doing numbers and seeing how that pencils out is is uh, is obviously it kind of gets you ahead of the game there and looking at profitability of that. So so deciding to go with pigs. And I know that uh, last year was was really your first year of, of going kind of cradle the grave with with pigs. So tell mm -hmm. me a little bit. Tell me a little bit about that year. Like, uh, what did you start with? Uh, breed you chose, uh, and then we'll get on to talk about infrastructure. So we another another. This is probably debatable. So feel free to give your take <laughs> on this. But another another comment from that um, uh, general pastured livestock podcast was mm -hmm. that you know when it comes to pork, um, once it's packaged and if it's raised on pasture and particularly in the woods, um, it's so far and above what you might get in the grocery store that um, whether it was a fancy breed or not, um, people will be head over heels. Yeah. And so I, partly because it was so hard to come by feeder pigs last spring uh, and partly because I got over my, you know, the potential, uh, arbitrary restrictions of saying, well, it has to be this breed or that breed. I just looked for folks that had feeder pigs available and started calling around. Um, and the one I ended up going with had uh, kind of just a traditional, or I should say, uh, almost maybe more conventional uh, Hampshire, Yorkshire, Tamworth cross. So they just had a, had a bunch of bunch available and they all, they did their own thing on the, on the farrowing side. And uh, I got them when they were about 40 pounds and, um, uh, so I had sort of a mixture out there in the, in the pasture and in the woods. Um, and it was, it was interesting to see the different morphology, morphology of the different, uh, even just those different breeds without even, without even some of the more, you know, interesting or savory, uh, heritage breeds. 
Yeah, and, and I uh, and I like that approach, you know, especially the first year getting started there. Um, it, it can almost become a little bit of a of a test or an experiment to say, okay, let's let's just take what we can get because you can have preconceived notions or you could even have this paralysis by analysis of saying, well, right. I've got to have this breed. This is the breed that I've been studying on or so-and-so says this. And then you know, just get some pigs. I mean, that, that's kind of how I looked at it the first year is I'm going to put some pigs out here because I may not even be able to keep them alive. So let's let's just get some <laughs> some pigs that maybe have some hybrid vigor, uh, can survive anything I throw at them and, and then take it from there and, and kind of evolve as as you see how the results come out. Uh, yeah, I like I, I like that. So so you've got these these um, you know, uh, run of the mill uh, or you know, you know no no great personality pigs out there. They're, they're, they are what they are. And uh, so how did you um, wh- where did you start? Did you start with two? Did you start with thirty? Did you start with yeah? Did you put them in a cage? Yeah. How, how did you how did you know where to start there? Um, first was watching YouTube like the way most people start anything these days um, and sort of just seeing, you know, uh, I, well, I, I also knew again from this other, from, from certain podcast uh, advice that they sort of said, you're fine with, you're fine with saying that, that yeah, there, we, no, we, know, we have I, no I, such I, thing I as competing podcasts. It's, it's <laughs> in fact, Darby, Darby's on my list. I'd love to have him on the show one of these days. Oh, so. well, that's great. Yeah. And one of the things he said was, you know, you know, if you're thinking about, as you said, cradle to grave, um, just be careful about the cradle part because that's an entirely different universe. Um, and so I, I knew I didn't necessarily want to try to, you know, jump into this with some sort of harrowing situation or whatever. So step one was knowing I'm just going to find some 40 ish, 40, 50 pound feeder pigs um, for whatever the going rate is, which um, this year was, you know, somewhere between 75 and hundred bucks a head, which apparently is higher than it uh, has been in years past, but yeah. you gotta, you, you gotta, take what you get um and so uh, that was sort of my um uh, starting point and then you know i just frankly asked some uh humbling questions of <laughs> of some of these breeders like so um how do i get these home <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. you know i didn't have a didn't have a stock trailer didn't know if i needed one and so i just started asking questions uh, that is one aspect of my personality i'm not afraid to admit what i don't know um, and so found a, found a guy locally here, maybe, uh, 30, 30, 40 miles away that just sort of let me talk his ear off about different things. And, um, I had also visited a, I actually met a, a, a forest raised pork producer at the local farmer's market in the old, you know, in our old suburban, suburban farmer's market where we lived. And I guess I made a mental note that if I ever took the leap here, I would uh, I would reach out to them. Um, so they're they're called they're, they are called Flying Leap Farm in yeah. uh, Taylor's Falls, Minnesota. They I just sent her an email one day and said I met you at the farmers market two years ago. Um, would you mind if I just came by and took a look at what you're doing with your pigs? And if there's anything I can do, you can put me to work. Uh, please do. And so uh, she gave me a tour and showed me just how they transported water and had these, uh, you know, stainless steel feeders that they'd gotten from a, a production uh, hog operation in Iowa, you know, just little things like this, like, okay, I'll put those on my list. Um, and 
and then she also helped uh, invited me to help install a fence so i was able to come through on that uh offer to help not just take the tour yeah um and so i realized and, and she had said she had made the comment you know she liked doing groups of seven because that was what she felt comfortable with uh in terms of just how many animals underfoot um and so i just ended up rounding up a little bit and just decided to do 10. I figured if I could do seven, I could do 10. Um, and so t- we did 10 our first year. And um, the the answer to how do I get these pigs home was um, get a couple extra large dog kennels from the local farm and fleet store and um, put five in each one. And by the time you arrive back at the farm, they'll all be cuddled up in there sound asleep. And sure enough, that's, <laughs> that's what they were. Um, so I, the night before, as I was thinking about picking these things up and dropping them on, you know, putting them in their training pen, which again, you asked about where I learned some of that, but I knew that I needed this, you know, the hog panels and the, I ended up doing a 32 foot by 32 foot uh, training pen that I put them in, uh, training for electric wire. And, uh, the night before I was picking them up, I just thought, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, but anyway, next day went, picked them up. Uh, and when I got back to the, the field there in the forest and I saw they were all asleep on top of each other in the back of the pickup in these dog crates and, uh, let them out down this, you know, I sort of slid them out on a ramp and opened that gate and they started rooting around in the, the forest floor, the happiest, happiest could be. I just, I went from what have I gotten myself into to, this is the greatest idea I've ever had. Yeah. And, uh, it was, uh, it's still almost, <laughs> almost makes tears come to my eyes. Just thinking about, um, going from idea to, um, uh, idea to animal in, in a few months. And, uh, and then the fact that it worked out so well. That's great. That's great. And, and I gotta say, um, you are extremely blessed that that was your transport story because wow. <laughs> maybe mine's unique, but uh, we, we did similar because uh, when we started 10 years ago, again, didn't know anything, but go transport three hogs and a dog kennel. But in the back of my wife's um, Xterra, and for some reason, wow. I, don't know why I didn't take the truck. I thought it may have been cold and I thought the wind would be too much. But I guess we had Linda Blair pigs because all they did was just spin around, squeal and just you know, projectile poop. So um, <laughs> we, we drove. It was an hour drive. So we spooky. drove with the windows down when it was cold with our heads out because the smell of, of pig manure was so strong. And I had to yeah. promise my wife I'd you know, detail the car. But, but yeah, so yeah. so but, but I like what you said there. And I don't want to steal away from that. The, the idea that. You get these pigs, you get them on the ground, and you just see them automatically just just integrate into the setting yes. you put in place, and just how just how natural that seems, and and then something clicks. So so I would assume that if if I polled you that over the next couple of weeks, you probably found yourself just fascinated sitting there watching them interact with uh, the landscape you've introduced them to. Absolutely, and I was um, yeah, I was probably a little bit overly nervous you know so i had you know multiple electric fences surrounding my hog panel training fence i didn't want some coyote to get any ideas and um you know i was down there and actually at the time we were still we had this land but we hadn't actually acquired a home um in the area yet so we (laughs) talk about a sort of a leap of faith we we sold our house without a place uh, another home to to purchase and we ended up staying at a family basically a family cabin oh, wow. <laughs> uh, across the river in the woods for a few months while we looked for a new place. Um, we were actually planning on building on this site and that like 
probably no worse times to try to purchase lumber or steel than uh, June of 2021. So we scrapped that plan and uh, found a little, a different little abode to acquire. But um, uh, anyway, so my, that first week, basically it was an hour, <laughs> speaking of hour commutes, that was an hour, we were a further, another hour out of the city. So I was commuting, um, I was commuting an hour a day or an hour each way to uh, take care of those animals. Um, and so that was, it was, and I look back and I think, wow, that was, you know, two hours round trip every day just to water them and feed them and kind of watch them, like you said. Um, but as I think back, it just, something about that trip just didn't even matter because I knew that I was going to be <laughs> working with those animals and it just seemed worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. All right. So, so you've got them, you've got them on the property there. Excuse me. You got them on the property there and you're exploring uh, or you've got them in your training area, so you're 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 looking at opening that opening that area up. If they've gotten a little bigger, they've gotten trained to the electric fence. So, what other infrastructure were you like? Man, I got to go out and get this immediately, and I got to have this in place. And uh, how did how did that just affect? I mean, maybe it just affect the wallet, or just affect the, your psyche as you're trying to put all that together. Yeah, so I um, I made sure that I had a list of things that I would need. Um, and I didn't necessarily obsess about buying everything that I would eventually need right away, but I made sure I had a, you know, a 50 gallon waterer with a pig nipple on the front and um, made sure I had a, a water tank that I could, I had to try, I actually had to transport water in. There's no, no electricity, no, um, no well on the property. So all the water was hauled, uh, all the, if I did use electricity, it was with a generator that I acquired a little bit later at a, at a farm auction. Um, so anyway, I, I kind of told myself if, if I can pull this off with zero infrastructure, that everything I add into the mix later will feel <laughs> like a true, uh, a true upgrade and it'll feel like I, you know, maybe I earned it. Um, and so, you know, like any, like any, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, water, shelter. Um, so I was able to acquire a couple, uh, I think they call them calf hutches. They're like a um, plastic uh, igloo looking thing. I call them my pigloos. Um, and uh, I had uh, those feeders. So I drove down to Iowa on um, uh, on Mother's Day. That didn't earn me a lot of points, but I <laughs> drove down to Iowa on Mother's Day and threw uh, three of these giant stainless steel feeders in the back of the pickup. And again, um, that was that was also kind of a just a nice contrast because I was just talking with that gentleman down there and he was he was uh, contracting, you know the the raising of uh, hogs in one of these giant hundred thousand animal buildings down there um, and uh, uh, or or complex of buildings and just sort of seeing the contrast with <laughs> told him what I had in mind and he sort of just. <laughs> <laughs> sort of just chuckled at the scale. Oh, 10, you're doing 10 pigs, huh? Interesting. Yeah, All right. Yeah, exactly. We got, yeah. we got a few more down here, but, um, yeah. so we just talked about things and, um, you know, not to get too morbid here, but just in terms of that contrast, you know, him talking about what they did, you know, again, back to COVID stuff and lockdown stuff, um, what they had, you know, euthanizing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pigs in that area. Um, just because of all the production, um, uh, the, the processing chain breaking. And, you know, just this idea that 
you don't really <laughs> like a lot of things you don't really think about that when you're just staring at a nice vacuum pack in the in the grocery store when you're buying your bacon yeah um but the idea that we could do our own little small part to you know not have any such <laughs> not have any such contingencies that we had to worry about we we had our own share but um not necessarily anything on that scale and so not that not not to make a judgment there but just it felt good to uh, think about that contrast and sort of Im Im embed some of our values into the the meat we were raising yeah very good very good so so you get all that in place um and and looking at this first year knowing that you're you've got 10 hogs and obviously you're not going to you're not going to consume all 10 of those so that that business model you're you're building there how did you go about acquiring a customer base even even for this small number where, where did you start there and how did that work out for you so I, my background is in uh, tech. Um, and so I knew how to spin up a, a website pretty quickly. Um, so we ended up just, we and I ended up just um, one weekend, I said, you know, we're, we're sort of getting started. I'm starting to talk to different folks about what we're doing, uh, including some bankers thinking about financing down the line for this and that and this land acquisition. Everybody wants to see some sort of story somewhere of who we are. And so, um, I put together uh, our website in a weekend and <laughs> um, felt like it was pretty, pretty adequate, um, at least as a placeholder. And then we, we ended up using Squarespace. And so they had some built in e-commerce stuff. So, yeah. um, you know, candidly, I just looked around at what other kind of premium pastured pork folks were doing um, in terms of pricing. And I'm uh, sure there's more sophisticated ways to do this, but um, I sort of picked a number that looked uh, looked about right. <laughs> um, I wasn't, wasn't too concerned with, you know, whether it was 10% profit or 20% loss. The, the, the question was, uh, could we actually sell it to someone? Yeah. Um, and so we, and could we put together an ordering system that made it easy for people to sort of claim theirs and get on the list and just make sure that that was easy to, to manage. Um, so some of it was friends and friends and family, word of mouth, that kind of thing. Um, we have had our share of folks that have found us more organically with the Google search. You know, they just, uh, we, we show up, um, on the list and they'll, they'll place an order. Um, but that first year, especially cause there were so few, uh, animals to go around. A lot of them got, uh, s snatched up by friends and family first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely was a, uh, COVID that's one thing it brought was uh, a demand for that. And it seemed like anybody that had a surplus of inventory was, uh, was able to move that much quicker than they had expected. Right. Well, excellent. So, yeah, looking at your website, you've got online sales here as an aspect of that. Um, I like how you're doing the bundles, and it kind of keeps that simple, uh, offering your chicken there, deposits as you uh, assume head into this next year, and kind of getting that interest generated immediately. So, um, so how so how did it go to this this final or this because obviously all of the, your pigs have been processed you you don't you're not raising any pigs right now because of the winter season, but how mm -hmm. did how did that go to uh, to finishing there any issues any things that maybe you've learned from this first year that say okay this is what I need to do better next. Yes, yeah, so one goal I had was to. Um... You know, everybody's favorite topic is how hard it is to find processing dates. Um, and so I a felt that pain as I was trying to find an open slot later than everybody else. So we actually didn't finish until November. 
or didn't find an opening until November. Um, got the pigs a little bit late. It was June 2nd. So basically Thanksgiving was the last, the last one we uh, butchered um, at any rate. And so one thing I learned was if you use a flat, a, a flat price <laughs> because it's a nice round number and it looks about right and you're not sure how big your pigs are going to be. Um, and then you grow them for a month longer than you should. You just spend a lot of feed <laughs> adding weight to these pigs that you didn't necessarily need, need to for the price you set. Right. So um, to be specific, we were expecting or ho hoping that they would finish around 285 live weight. Um, and they ended up finishing closer to 350. Oh, wow. So, you know, I think people were happy that they got a nice big, um, nice, a nice bonus. Uh, although some of them, some of them, if you don't have the freezer space, I'm not sure that's actually a gift. Um, I think half, half of my customers and friends and family that decided to purchase from us ended up purchasing a, a deep freezer as well. So, um, I actually consider that the gift that keeps on giving the fact that I encouraged, uh, inspired them to get one of those. So, right, right. um, but yeah, they, it takes up a little bit of room. And so, that was one thing I learned. Um, don't necessarily grow them past the point that you want to sell them for. Um, although the processors were happy to do it because they process, you know, by the pound. Um, and then I also wanted to, uh, I'm a, I'm a hunter as well. So I've done dozens of deer and hundreds of ducks in my life. Right. So the, the big game and the, the poultry aren't necessarily intimidating. Uh, the fowl poultry aren't necessarily intimidating, but so, um, I ended up doing the, the, the pig that we saved back for ourselves. Um, I ended up butchering that myself on, on farm. Um, and so that was, a uh, different than <laughs> different from a deer, but not, not wildly. So, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, I'm also used to, not to get too in the weeds on that, but I'm used to kind of separating. I think they call them now the trendy term is, um, is it whole, whole cuts or primal cuts or muscle, you know, whole muscle yeah. um, separated at the, the sort of the natural seams versus the uh, kind of the bandsaw method. Right. And uh, yeah. that was maybe one difference is all the, all the butchering um, uh, tutorials talk about, you know, just cutting everything down, down straight lines and not really following some of those curves and those, things like that. So that was a little bit different. Hmm. Um, and uh, had, a, had a friend who also wanted to uh, butcher his own on farm together. So I helped him do that. Um, I also had one person come and uh, purchase an animal live for his own butchering back on his his property. So we, um, you know, and again, not to get too morbid here, but I ended up so I ended up dispatching three of the 10 myself. Yeah. Um, and I guess I didn't know how that would feel after six months of uh, raising these things up, but um, honestly, it felt about as respectful as I could be <laughs> to give them a, a really good life and um, have them uh, expire there on the the ground that they were, you know, grew up on. Um, uh, not to say that the ones that got transported to the the processor had any you know, major or worse experience, but it definitely did it definitely did not feel gruesome or hard to do it felt like a, a respectful way to to close the loop yeah yeah i was gonna say that just, there's just a natural closure to that when you can be um be there at the beginning and also be be there and have your hands in the end it, it just seems to be today I, I same way i've got one pig that 
when it's time for she's kind of become the matriarch of the farm and and when it comes time yeah. for her to to go i mean she's way past processing but when she gets to the point where she probably needs to be put down because of just age then you know i'm the only person that needs to do that because it's my right. responsibility and she's been she's been a part of the farm since almost the beginning she's the second generation of a pigs on our farm but it's just one of those things it's like it feels like that's what i owe it to her to to do that and, and respect to the pig so right so let's so let's talk about next year so what does 2022 obviously we're in uh, we're, we're coming out of winter well you're probably not coming out of winter yet but we're we're coming out of winter soon hopefully we'll be coming out of winter soon so you're coming out of winter soon um, I, I assume you're going to do pigs again uh, I know you do some poultry as well so what does 2022 look like for Rust Hill Ranch yes last year we did 10 pigs and 150 chickens uh, broiler chickens this year we plan to do 20 pigs and uh, 450 chickens um, so let's call it doubling um, uh, part of that is just to utilize the capacity of the land a little bit better we were uh, the we we had a method of moving the pigs where they were on um, the basically one one side of the property has woods um, and then there's pretty much a straight line that separates those woods from the pasture and so we ran our um, ran our portable polywire temporary polywire fence uh, perpendicular to that so their paddocks were half woods half pasture yeah. um, so they could come in and out and so that worked well and then we just marched up the, the length of the 40 there um, luckily we started at one end and when it was time to be finished they were at the other end and we didn't run out of <laughs> run out of <laughs> woods um, so those were about quarter to half acre paddocks. We left them in there about uh, seven, seven to 14 days at most. Um, anyway, so we felt like we had some, uh, we, we were really only using maybe half or a third of the available land there. So um, by doubling, I think we can, we can use that a little more effectively. Um, I don't know if you have an opinion on if 20 pigs in one group is too much or if, uh, uh, if that would be fine if they've got enough space to spread out yeah to me that's just that's just kind of seeing how how they behave obviously the more pigs in the same amount of pasture you just move them faster or you you, know, you double you double the amount of space if if your 10 pigs last year did well uh, at a certain at a certain ratio of, of ground and the days they spent then uh, and, and you didn't have to do a lot of ground repairs they moved then, uh, then just look at expanding that uh, to whatever degree based on the next number that you have. And that's the neat thing, yeah. especially with the, like you'd said, the, the infrastructure you put in place, not putting in permanent infrastructure yet with the portable, with the poly fence, and of course having the, the beauty of being mostly flat and you know, wooded on one side and pasture on the other, you, you can really do a lot of experimenting and, and really just, it's one of those things, just you know, take copious notes to say, hey, this, this is working out this way. Um, yeah, our pastures are improving from last year or they're declining. We've ha we have to do a lot of overseeding while well, we're putting too much wear and tear on them. Yeah, I, I, I think I don't, I don't know that there's a smoking gun to say this is exactly how many you want to do this this long because there's so many variables. I mean, you guys could experience a drought or you could experience a deluge this year. And, and then right. between mud and dried grass, you know, there's hopefully there's a happy medium in between that allows you to, to be productive. Yeah, last year was really hot and dry. Um, the woods were about when I walk in there, I felt like it was about 15 to 20 degrees cooler under there. So I yeah. think that that helped a lot. 
Um, and I think it being a little drier helped to, you know, ward off what other kinds of possibly some potential diseases and stuff that happen when things get cold and wet. So, yeah. um, felt pretty good about last year. We also put down a, um, a forage cover crop for them. It was kind of a special mix designed just for at least marketed as for hog, you know, specially built for hogs. So, yeah. uh, got some really nice, uh, uh, kind of leafy cabbage stuff in there that they just they just loved. In fact, it was so good I, I'd eat a little leaf every time I went in there. So um, that that seemed like a pretty good setup. Yeah, and and then the, the thing that we've discovered, and it sounds like you probably have uh, an opportunity for this as well, is uh, when there's good mass production. Uh, so we had this year, we just had an incredible crop of acorns and hickories and walnuts and beech nuts, mm. and it just seemed like um, there were times where uh, I daily feed the pigs, so I have a daily ration that I would take them that was uh, uh, soaked and fermented. So as I would take mm. it to my herd that I was uh, processing this year, I would put it out, and there'd be times to see, okay, you know, other t- you know, certain days that they're, they're kind of going at it, and the other days they're kind of just sauntering up to it, and it's like, huh, yeah, there, there's obviously they're finding plenty and plenty of forage in this woods, and then realize it's, it's right. yeah, connected to mass. So, so even those things can can be huge variables to say, oh, hey, my feed conversion just looks incredible when I pencil this out uh, this <laughs> year, and then next year, oh, it's, it's just not as good. But it's you know, again those variables that come with pasturing that uh, give you that option. Yeah, and we had some. We have some really. That was actually one thing I was a little bit concerned about. We have some really big, um, like three hundred year old oak trees in there, um, and I was a little nervous that they might get too enthusiastic about finding those acorns and might actually do a little damage to the root structure if if there's too many simultaneously, even if you keep them moving quickly. So, I guess we'll we'll keep an eye on that this year. Yeah, I would I would say again, just in my experience, especially you know, I I do have to deal with uh, the heavy slope and erosion, so I that's something I'm constantly watching, but with the uh, the oaks that we have or any of the trees for that matter that they 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 just don't seem to be able to, or are interested in in digging up too much it, it literally is we're going to go with the ground contact we're going to get what's there and then eat and move on the thing i've noticed the most is uh, using certain trees especially our shagbark hickories where they're extra spiky they like to rub up against them and so yeah. so walking through the the woodlot there i see some of my shagbarks and some of the white oaks are are a little smoother around the uh, around the waist than they they should be, but yeah, they're they're not peeling the bark or doing anything like that. I think only if a pig is really starving is it going to start uh, you know, trying to you know, delaminate the roots and dig everything up that way. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, starving was not their problem last year. They were <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they performed very well. Yes, indeed, indeed. So we've talked about 2022. What about what about longer term plans? So what what do you think? Maybe let's look down the uh, the corridor of time here. At five years from now, what would you like to see? What what would be a goal for Rust Hill Ranch within five years? Well, five years, I definitely want to be lugging fewer five-gallon pails <laughs> full of water. Right. Um, I don't know how many thousand of those I did this summer, but um, I guess it was a good workout. Um, so, you know, there's an infrastructure component there. Um, I do like the idea of... Um, uh, I think there's a permaculture concept that sort of says just don't do anything with the land for a year, just watch it. Yep. Um, and I sort of did that by out of necessity last year. Um, was not not investing in under underground water lines and you know below the frost line, 50 inches down, and, um, 
bunch of bunch of permanent fence. We did string a little bit of high tensile just to have a hot wire that we could tap into, but sure. um, otherwise it was really really low low uh, low key. So increase in the infrastructure, uh, a well on site would obviously be pretty great. Um, maybe someday we'll actually build that dream dream homestead we planned on doing in 2021 before 2021 2021 us. Um, and uh, so that's you know even though we're, we're, we live about 10 minutes up the road now uh, from the land from this land and so that's not a long way but it, yeah I know there's obvious advantages to having stuff out your back door. Um, so that's that's another component. I think uh, we also would like to kind of get back to that original inspiration of having some some cattle on there to actually convert grass into uh, into meat. Not doesn't necessarily need the same kinds of um, omnivorous uh, ration that pigs do. So I think there's a little bit more using what nature gives you uh, right right on the spot there. And that once the pasture has been a little more rehabilitated from the corn and soy rotation, that's another piece. Yeah, yeah, good deal deal yeah i like that i like the uh the idea of you know, investing in the infrastructure but really sitting back and, and observing the land and, and seeing what it's going to do and and i can speak from experience there's things that i put in that were like okay this is going to be permanent and then realize well that's just not the <laughs> it's not the best way to do that so uh you yeah. know the money and time and, and tearing something out and and replacing it simply because i i felt it was a better plan but yeah, that's the challenges of it. You, you read the land and, and just see how it goes and and adjust the best you can. Well, all right, so let's do this. Before I let you go, I know we're running a little long here. Before I let you go, i got to ask you the question I ask everybody else. So, uh, Matt, what is your favorite part, or what do you like the most about raising pigs on pasture? Well, since it was my first year, um, it was the continuation of that story I kind of already hinted at where I had no idea about how what pigs would be like to work with. Um, I've listened to enough podcasts of yours to know that everybody has basically the same answer, which is pigs are just wonderful creatures to work with. Um, but that again, that sort of very specific, you know, an animal that will, you know, you hear horror stories and about, you know, how hard they are to load and how frustrating they are to work with. and to get them all, you know, transported 30 minutes down the road, and they've all fallen asleep on each other, and then they're they're at home in heaven, as you know, within a tenth of a second of hitting that that dirt. Yeah. Um, that that just that to me is a moment that I will always uh, cherish, and the fact that they, you know, they got bigger and they got a little bit more brutish, but they didn't ever really get any more. Uh, unpleasant to, to work with. Yeah. Um, they were, you know, if they were moving one way and I wanted, and I was moving another, it was a little harder to kind of nudge them out of the way. Uh, but that was another thing. I just, I just learned, I guess it was a good just attitude to have in general about some things, which if something doesn't want to do what you want it to do, don't try to force it because you're just going to make it worse. Right. Um, and so I found that instead of trying to chase a pig around, you know, if nine got through the gate on our paddock move and one was still hanging out, you know, wasn't chasing it, wasn't whacking it with a stick. I was sort of proud that I never once kicked or yelled at these things. Um, I just, I would just sort of wait <laughs> and I'd walk behind them. And if they wanted to stay away from me, I'd use that to my advantage and get on the opposite side that I wanted them to go. And then they'd stay away from me and go where I wanted them to go. Yeah. Um, and eventually got to the point where, you know, open the gate and say my little chant and here they come charging at me, you know, without a, without a, 
uh, and uh, without a thought, you know, from them or me on, on what we were doing. So um, that, that to me was kind of the, the culmination of that very first moment I had them out there and they were just a joy to work with from, from start to finish. Good deal. Very good. Awesome. Yeah. I, I gotta say, it's just, it is, it, it does become, like you said, the, the pad answer, but there is just something about uh, watching them on pasture. And then of course, um, just the, the added, it, it forces you to, and, and my wife could attest to this. You know, I originally not a patient man, probably even could say I have a little bit of an anger issue in my past, but it seems like pig farming has caused me to uh, calm down along with other things, but it, it seems to have added to that, that healing salve of, of becoming more of a patient individual uh, simply because yeah. you see that when a pig appreciates you and respects you and is not completely scared of you, they're actually a little bit more uh, easy to manage and to handle than something that's uh, you know, afraid you're like the alpha predator. You want to come in and kill them. So they're you know, defensive or right. running away or doing those things. So it, it is neat. And I, yeah, I, you, you made me think for some reason when you were talking to this story, uh, this, this memory popped in my head of when we had to bottle feed uh, a couple pigs, piglets, when uh, uh, we had a bad farrowing had actually the, the sow died and these three survived. And so we bottle fed them and, and I just felt I was just so attached to these piglets that I, uh, once they were weaned, I, I sent them to another farm, actually a, a, mm. another location that, that knowing that I wouldn't be the one uh, necessarily processing them. And I actually visited that farm when, when it was, um, when they were much, much grown, probably been four months, five months later and visited that farm. And both of those piglets came running up to me. Of course, they weren't piglets at that oh, time. Wow. Came running up to me and just rub against you like dogs. And it's just like, man, that's just amazing. These these animals can remember that. And, and you know, that fear of man is gone. And, and they just didn't have that relationship with the guys that tended them daily. But when once they once they saw me, I don't know if it was a smell or a sight or what, but they, they just, uh, I guess they were reminiscing the way I was. So it was interesting. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, Matt, if, if people want to find out more about Rust Hill Ranch, how can they do so? Our website is rusthill.com. Uh, we're on Instagram at rusthillranch. Um, those are the best places to find us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, the photos right now are dominated by pictures of snow, unfortunately. <laughs> it's not quite as interesting as, uh, as good looking pigs and chickens. Um, but uh, we're excited for spring to be sprung here and uh, get some get some new faces out there. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. I, I notice you do have a YouTube link on your website as well. Is that uh, is that something that's coming? That's something I just wanted to get a little kernel of uh, a start on. I think we just have a handful of videos there now. Um, one of them is actually us, my son, my at the time uh, two year old son helping me set up this training pen, um, and uh, so it was. That's been another real blessing is just to have my young in this case son and now i have a one-year-old daughter who i'm sure will be doing her share soon but um just the ability for them to participate in this i i hope that someday they are they whether they know it or not that they appreciate that that we're trying to do this and that they got to be a part of it yeah yeah very cool very cool yep uh again speaking from some experience there where 10 years have passed and I have a 20 year old son and a, and a 16 year old son and, and the experiences they got to have, they wouldn't say they were all great, but <laughs> they, at yeah. least, they at least appreciate it and realize that they've gotten to experience something that, um, 
most teenagers their age uh, would not normally experience. So I think they chalk right. that up as a positive. So, Well, all right, Matt, man, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Enjoyed speaking with you. And, and we'll definitely post, um, post these links uh, down in our show notes there so you guys can check out his website. And, and uh, he's got a blog element on there as well so you can kind of see what he's got going on. Got some great pictures as well. Well, Matt, I, I'm going to let you go, but I appreciate you coming on. And, man, I pray you have a great week. All right, well, I really appreciate Matt coming on the podcast and sharing his story with us. I, I just love the startup stories, kind of like time for a change of scenery, change of plan, change of direction, and just uh, dive in head first. So I appreciate him sharing that. Well, I'd be remiss if I wouldn't, again, give a shout out to our Patreon supporters. I really appreciate those of you all that have stuck in here with me, even this winter and, and early spring where podcast episodes aren't rolling out as, as fast as I'd like them to. But I think that may change going forward. But if you would like to, can 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 help continue to support the podcast or see the podcast and the other things that we're trying to do grow more. Uh, then by all means, consider supporting us at Patreon for as little as $5 a month. You can help us, and we're trying to reach a supporter-level goal of 40 as our next benchmark and be able to uh, kind of turn on some additional features as well. So check that out. There'll be details down below in the show notes. Well, again, I appreciate everyone that listens. The feedback, you know how to reach out to me using the form on the website or use my email, troy at redtoolhouse.com. And just give me feedback. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast, let me know. Or if you've got some great topics, let me know. Well, I pray everyone a great week. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com. 